Well, this morning, we will be turning in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I remember the first time I taught this passage. It's funny, because uh, I think Eli was actually there. And uh, we were at, having youth group at Parkland Chapel. And here I am talking to this group of youth who none of them are married, and I wasn't at the time. So I had absolutely no experience. I was a relatively new believer. And so the, a lot of these principles that I now embrace is something that guides the way that I look at life and my interaction with my wife and the interaction in the church, um, they were all uh, brand new topics to me. And so a lot of the questions that came up were things that I had no idea how to answer. And I will submit to you this morning that I still am not quite understanding, but I know that God's ways are better than my ways. And he has a purpose and a design in everything that he, he tells us in his word. And so 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, two weeks ago before Easter, we began this chapter and we studied verse 1 through 7, which was really um, about our attitude towards all people. And so um, he lists there, therefore, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And so he starts by saying, first of all, prayer be made. And he talks about four different kinds. We went through those. But what I want to point out about this is that the priority in the church was to be first and foremost prayer. To us as individual believers talking to God affects the way that we interact with those around us. And so prayer should be the first portion of the service, but it should also be the first portion of each and every one of our days. Spending time with our Father gets us in line with our Father and what He is like and how we are to interact. Look at the example of Jesus. Many times you read in, in the gospel accounts basically that Jesus, before His disciples would even wake up, they would go looking for Him when they woke up and they would always find Him in prayer. Now if Jesus, the Son of God, needs to communicate with His Father, how much more do you think that we need to communicate with our Heavenly Father? And so... Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is in the church at Ephesus. He's a young a pastor, and he is called to be there, even though he lives in a very ungodly culture. And he's getting ready to tell Timothy um, some ways about conducting ourselves within the church. But before he goes there, in verse 1 through 7, he talks about how we are to conduct ourselves among all men. And he says there to pray for I put in capital for you there in my outline to pray for all men, not just the ones that we agree with, but all men. Uh, Jesus told his disciples on many occasions to pray for his enemies. He actually said, pray for those who despite, or excuse me, who spitefully use you. People that not only dislike you or disagree with you, but on the offensive, try to cause you to stumble or try to throw your name up in front of people and lie about you. Those who would use your name for ill-gotten gain even. He says, pray for all men. And he says in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So he says, pray for those who are in power. Now, God judges without partiality, right? He doesn't treat any man above another. But he says, pray for those who are in power. And he has a reason for this because we are affected by those who are in power. He says, pray for them. 
because they have to make decisions that affect all of us. Verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So not only are we praying for those who are in power and authority over us, but we are also praying for them, not just so because they affect us, but because their eternity is at stake. He desires all men to be saved. And that includes politicians you don't agree with. Pray for them. For the good of the country and for the good of them. Pray for their benefit. Uh, we can see a good example of this in the book of Daniel where Daniel prays for his leader. And Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, from reading the book of Daniel, will actually be in heaven when we get there. Now, wrap your mind around that. Nebuchadnezzar, of all people. And so he says there, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. Now, most of the time when you hear somebody say, honestly, at the beginning of a sentence, that implies that maybe they might not always tell the truth. Um, so I always try not to, you know, honestly, here's what I think. But in, in this case, Paul's just making a point. He says, I'm, these words can be taken to Jesus himself, and if I'm not saying the right thing, then, uh, you know, hopefully bad things happen to me and I get shut down because he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. He says, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So these are all the things that Paul talks to Timothy about the attitude of the believer towards all people. He says, pray for those who are in power, those who are affected by the powerful, and pray for the benefit of our current residents. We are only here for a short period of time. So pray for the benefit of all of those who live in this day and age, who live in our communities, who work at our jobs. Pray for all of them because all that may hear the truth and be saved. He says, since all will give an account to God, and there is only one who we must give an account to, who is the mediator between God and man. Our only defense eternity, eternity, our only offense, defense attorney, there, that came out, between us and God the Father is Jesus. And the only defense attorney for the unbeliever is the same Jesus. And so we are to pray for all men to that end, that they might be saved. If that's God's plan and will, then it should be ours. Now, next slide, please. Verse 8 through 15 is about conduct within the body of Christ. So we already know how our attitude is to be towards those who are outside of the fellowship, and really for those who are inside the fellowship too. But now he's going to talk about our conduct in the church. And so um, let's read it, and then we'll talk about what I got on the slide there. Verse 8 says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, and in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, costly clothing, Man, this is working good this morning. But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, the hairy part. Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. 
And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. So that's it. Uh, Good service. Let's go. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That would be the easy thing to do. And I would submit to you, most pastors do not go, I think I'm going to teach this passage this week. And that's why, that's one of the reasons that we teach the scriptures as they are, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because um, I'm not going to have a tendency to pick these passages. But the Lord put them in for there for a reason. So since he did, I must not neglect to rightly divide the word of truth, uh, but I must take the time to unpack what is something that could be an explosive and uh, misunderstood passage. So before we get there, I, I'm, this, this very set of verses is talking about the conduct of believers within the church. So what is the church? The church, I would submit to you, and I put a little graphic up there, a little picture of our church. I think it, uh, it should have a little... You know, like this is not the church. This is a building that we meet in, right? We think of church, and I googled church, and it was all pictures of churches. But the body of Christ is actually the church. Jesus did not die to save this building. He died to save individual sinners. He died for the whole world, but if it was just one of us in this room, he would have still done it to die for his bride, the body of Christ. Now, in the church means the body of Christ, this called-out assembly of people. And in chapter 3, he's going to talk about this ecclesia. And it's just essentially this called-out assembly of people that are called to be his own. In the Old Testament, God called out Abraham. And at the time he called him, he called him Abram because he was a father. And, and then his name became Abraham because he would become a father of many nations. So God called him, and the Israelites are his people. They were not chosen because they were great. They were not chosen because they were lovable. Abraham was an idol worshiper at the time that God called him out of that life and into a life of obeying his commands and following him, to be a billboard for what God can do if a life is given over to him. So this body of Christ, the church, is not a place of gathering, but it's actually Uh, a a called out people and our conduct within the church is our conduct that should be given by the saints and i put up there for you first corinthians chapter one verse two where it's actually referred to paul talks about the saints he's writing a letter there in verse two he says to the church of god which is at corinth to those who are sanctified in christ jesus those who have been washed and cleansed called to be saints. And in some translations that says called saints. Doesn't look at it as the to be future tense, but called right now saints. We don't have to wait till one day, a hundred years from now, when we're dead, we've done just the right amount of good works and uh, people remember what we said and our family's doing good. And then, you know what? We should put him in stained glass or her. Uh, That is the idea that we get when we think of saints. We think of somebody that's in stained glass somewhere. But saints are now. We are called saints because of what Christ has done. And if you would say, well, that's not me, 
then you're not actually trusting in the finished work of Christ. You're trusting in whatever you bring to the table, which the Bible says is filthy rags. But what we bring to the table is just simple obedience and trust in Jesus. Those things don't save us. They prove that we are saved, our lives. And so, next slide. So let's move on from there, now that I've stalled long enough. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says to the men, he says, I desire, therefore, because of what he has just said, that all men should pray, first and foremost. He says in verse 8, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. And I just want to stop there and say, men, you should pray everywhere. Not just at dinner, although I am guilty of that at times. Uh, not just at church. Uh, not just when there's an emergency. But everywhere. And I tell you what, if you can learn to pray everywhere, you can learn that God is involved in every piece of your life. He has not compartmentalized your work life from your home life. You know as well as I do, you can't come home and not be thinking about work. I can't come home sometimes without thinking about church stuff. I can't go to work. Isn't it funny you go to work and all of a sudden you're thinking about your family all the time? But when you go home, you're thinking about work, and it's just, that's, our, our minds don't have file folders that, you know, separate everything, but my point is, he says, I desire that men pray everywhere. He says, lifting up holy hands to do so without wrath and doubting, so he says, pray everywhere, men, keep yourself pure, lifting up holy hands. God has not called us to pray with dirty hands. Now, we will not be completely made new until we see Jesus face to face and he wipes away every tear. He says, enter into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. But the idea is we are to be ever going back to the throne of grace and asking for forgiveness and confessing our sins to him. Because when we do that, he says, we will be cleansed of all unrighteousness. So when you mess up and say the wrong thing, when you mess up and, and act in the wrong way, Forgiveness is always available, and we are to keep short accounts with God over those things. He says, put away anger and disputing. He says, we are to pray with holy hands, without wrath and doubting. Uh, wrath. Now, I don't know about you men, I'm speaking to the men, but uh, I never struggle with anger or wrath, so we can just pass this, right? How many of us are so driven to do the things that we're doing and we get angry easy when someone gets in our way, we're in the middle of a task. So he lists this because he knows we struggle with it. And, and I want to submit to you that these things that he's listing for the men are a short list because we have a short task list ability. Like, give us a short amount of things to do, and we'll remember it. At least I'm speaking for myself. But you'll notice that the men's list is shorter than the ladies, but I don't think it's because we have less problems. I think it's because our problems are really stemmed all back to this. We have more problems than just this, but if we would focus on this one verse, how it would affect and change the rest of our lives. He tells the men, pray everywhere, because men are the least likely to jump into prayer when something's going on. We're the most likely to jump in and try to fix it. You know, uh, we were joking at worship practice this Thursday because we're getting ready to start practice, and my wife is always the one that is faithful, say, hey, let's pray first. 
And I accused her of being the, the Holy Spirit for a minute there. I was like, oh, sure, you know, you get prayer Nazi over there, you pray. But in all reality, it's because when in our lives, when things are going good or bad or otherwise, my first impulse is to go do something because that's how you affect things. But that's not Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, every time something was going on, he would stop and pray first. So in many ways, my wife is modeling Jesus to me. And our wives are more likely to be the ones to jump to prayer because many times they don't know what to do to fix it. Uh, men, we think that we know how. And so we're less likely to depend and more likely to go. And what he says there is that we should be praying everywhere and about everything with holiness, with, without wrath and doubting. So, I put in the notes there. Put away anger and disputing. In other words, don't be praying in the midst of controversy. Get rid of the controversy. Put away doubt. Pray faith-filled prayers. Uh, now, at the same time, I will submit to you that God many times will answer prayers that are not very faith-filled. I remember one man coming to Jesus, and he said, uh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a prayer of little faith, but Jesus said all it took was a, a, a mustard seed of faith. Just a willingness to go, Lord, I don't know, but I know that you do know. And this situation seems impossible, but I know that with God, all things are possible. And there's that wrestling that goes on in prayer that actually doesn't change the circumstances many times, changes us. And so prayer. And so look at these things, though. He says, pray everywhere, keep yourself pure, put away anger and doubting. Uh, that's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus modeled every one of those things and in reality we are supposed to be jesus to everyone around us so how do we do that men this is the command that paul is giving us that we should be doing these things and i would uh, let you know first and foremost that i don't measure up but today is the day start today it's never too late and it also kind of uh, lines right up with james chapter 1 verse 19 and 22 but you can go there on your own time next slide Verse 9 and 10. Ladies, I put women. I should have put ladies. That's more nice, right? So ladies, verse 9 and 10. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And so um, I have up there for you a picture of a lady who um, has her hair adorned, and I think she looks pretty beautiful. Um, but in their day, uh, this looks for a modern, maybe she's a model, I don't know, I just Googled uh, hair, hairdos with jewels in it, because <laughs> I was, yeah, my accountability partner's going to be like, what in the world? What is he looking at on the internet? Uh, I'll have to explain this. I'll show them my slides. But um, what came up was this picture of this lady. And in that day, you know, today we could say somebody's very affluent. They had a hairdresser do it. But in their day, they had ladies. And this is in Ephesus. It's a very prominent society. Uh, people were of means. This is a Greek culture. And they were very extravagant. And they would take their hair and they would do this. They didn't have no curling iron. They had like a hot rock or something. I don't know. They have electricity. And so they're doing these things in their hair. They're adorning. Their, they're not just getting out the hairspray and getting about a 15-minute deal. 
This would take hours and hours and hours. For what? Now, as a guy, I get that it's totally easy for me to say, why does it matter? And I am very thankful that my wife, when we go out in public, wants to look nice for me. You know, we don't go pajama pants in Walmart. You know, I think most of it is just the fear of showing up on peoplewalmart.com. But, you know, that's the society we live in. But let me submit to you this. Outward adornment is a, a thing that we focus on. Uh, we're kind of getting more lax because we're a relaxed society, right? But those same ladies and guys will get on the Instagram, do a little selfie, and they'll spend 10 minutes going through the filter. Like, which one makes my nose not look a certain way? Or which one makes my eyes, you know, just have the right thing? And I get it. You know, we want to look good. We want to feel good. But is that what God has called us to? Is that sh It's not wrong to look nice. Um, whether it looks like it or not, I try to look nice. I, I do have beard wax or beard oil, and I do try to comb my hair and cover up the bald spot. And You know, I, I want to look nice. Um, it makes me feel better about myself. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, actually, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter references this same thing. Apparently it was an issue. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says this. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So what is he talking about here? I, I submit to you in verse 3, he says, do not let your adornment be merely or only outward there's nothing wrong with looking good as a matter of fact i think that it reflects those that we're closest to they we look nice for them it's a blessing to them uh, it speaks well if my wife um, looks like she's completely worn out all the time it reflects badly on me not just because she doesn't look nice but it looks like i don't take care of her you know and in the same way uh, here's the idea though He's teaching them something they struggle with. Just like men who struggle with being men of prayer everywhere, ladies, I believe, more than guys, maybe not in our society, struggle with only dealing with the outward stuff. Even if I don't have everything going on good inside, I want it to look that way, right? We want to hold ourselves together so that no one will think anything's wrong. But here's the reality. As believers, we already know that everything's not right. That's why we need a Savior, and so Jesus um, dealt with this when speaking to people. He, he, looked, he, he never looked at their outward appearance and didn't impact them. He actually spent time looking at their hearts. He listened to what they had to say. And um, so I have up there for you, uh, number one, he's saying in like manner. So I don't think he's leaving the, the, the idea that we need to be in prayer everywhere for the ladies too. I think he actually is saying also for the ladies but let's move on to something that you struggle with more. He says, adorn yourself. Don't overemphasize outward appearance. In 1 Samuel, it actually says this. 
uh, you know, the, uh, the prophet Samuel was going to, to find who was going to be the next king after King Saul. So he walks up and he sees all the sons of Jesse except one, who they didn't even call to the, to the dinner. He was out watching the sheep. That was David. And as he comes up, Samuel's looking at these guys and he's like, man, which one is it, Lord? And so he looks at the first one that's the tallest and the most handsome because that's what Saul was. That's what leaders should look like. They should represent the country. They should be tall and strong and have a commanding presence and be, you know, just charismatic. And, and so as he looked at each son, he said, Lord, is this the one? Nope, that's not him. Lord, is this the one? And then finally, at the end of it, we find out that it's David who is a short and he's actually kind of pretty, if that makes sense. Like if you think about guys, you don't want a, a pretty, it says that he's ruddy, but the idea is that his skin is kind of red, not meaning that he's, you know, a redheaded person that has pale skin, but more of like the kind that has kind of those red cheeks, if you know what I'm talking about, like the little boy that's got the, the freckled face and he's kind of red and uh, kind of makes me think of Opie, although I know he was a redheaded kid. You find that out in later episodes when it becomes color. But you have this little boy who looks very innocent, and he looks very almost cuddly. You want to pinch his cheeks. You don't want that to be your leader. You want somebody that looks like war-torn, somebody that's going to make things happen. But what it says there in 1 Samuel is, uh, don't look at the outward appearance. Man does that. God actually looks at the heart. He sees what drives the man. He cares about the character. He cares about the, the state of our hearts. And so uh, here in 1 Timothy 2, he, he's not saying don't look nice. He's saying, why don't you focus on the inward that will actually affect the outward. Um, and actually in, in Ruth chapter 2, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, maybe you've heard the, the, book, the story of the book of Ruth. Um, but in there, there's a woman by the name of Ruth and she has lost her husband, excuse me, sorry, let me back up. Her mother-in-law has lost her husband. And they have moved to a foreign country. They've taken husbands. And both of the daughters of this mother, Naomi, both of the daughters that have married into this, excuse me, they had sons. Sorry, I'm telling this story horribly. So essentially, there's this couple. They moved to Moab. Uh, the husband dies. And then both of their sons die, but they have already been married. So they have the mom and these two daughter-in-laws. They're essentially left without an income because they didn't have working households. They had, the ladies were at home. They would take care of the home, and then the husbands would go off to work and provide. They'd bring home the bacon. Well, when all the men die, what do you do? Well, it comes to find out that the famine is over in Israel, and they leave Moab, and they're going to go home. And when they're going to go home, Naomi looks at her daughter-in-laws. They say, hey, you guys are women of character. You've stayed with me. I have no sons to provide you. I have no food or money. Like, we're better off if you guys just go and remarry in your own country. And one of them goes, okay, thank you. And she leaves. And the other one says, I will not leave you. I want to be with you. I, I love you. I, I want to go back and be with your God. Something in, in, in Naomi's character caused this young woman to go, I, I don't like it here. I want to go back to be with the people that know your God because your culture is just a huge blessing. So she goes back. And when she gets there, uh, they have no income. And so there's laws in the Old Testament talking about gleaning and reaping. And, you know, if you were going to go clear your whole field of all of the, the, the wheat or the barley, 
You were not to get all of it. You were supposed to leave some there. Anything that fell out of your hands while you were reaping, you're supposed to leave it there for the poor who could come through. It's like God's uh, program for helping the poor. The government didn't have to do it. God did. And so if you were poor, you would go to these fields and you would reap behind the farmers that were there reaping. And you would pick up enough for your home and you would take it home and you would prepare it and be able to have something to eat, make bread out of. Well, Ruth went to this man's field, did this, found favor in his eyes. And what it says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, the owner of the field, Boaz, answered and said to her, well, let me look at this. Let me, let's see what she was asking. She fell on her face, verse 10 says, and bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? He's offered her food for lunch because most of the time they wouldn't feed them lunch while they're working on their property. She was just coming to get what she needed and she was going to leave. But he feeds her and treats her well. And so she's like, why are you doing this? Why are you taking care of me? And Boaz answered and said to her this, and I think it's very important that we notice it. Verse 11, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done by your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know. The Lord repay your work and full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz noticed about this young woman who would eventually become his wife that she had character. She knew that when her mother-in-law came back home, she still wouldn't have an income. She knew that she was too old to go out and glean for herself. So she went back in order to not be a burden to her, but to be a blessing. She went back to go and get food for her and take care of her like her sons would have. This is amazing. And so Boaz doesn't notice what she looks like, although it says in this book that she was very beautiful. But the first thing he takes notice of is her character. It's beautiful to him the way that she loves her mother-in-law. And I have to tell you, from learning from these kind of passages, that I was in a relationship for a year and a half with a girl that I really liked. And we were about a month out from marriage, and some things happened. We won't get into that. But she came to me and she said, we, we can't get married. And I was completely broken. I had uh, thought that I was doing the things that God wanted me to do God's way. We were seeking God's will. We were praying together. And God completely ripped it from my hands. But I want to tell you that two years later, I met Kelly. And I was not originally like goo goo gaga over Kelly. Not because of anything other than I just wasn't interested. Um, but what happened is my pastor was praying for me. And he uh, would always say, hey, you need to talk to this girl because she knows the Lord and this is going to be great. I'm the perfect matchmaker, which made me nervous because that always goes bad when you set people up. It just doesn't seem to have a good track record. But my point is, is that um, we ended up getting together and I made dinner for her and we actually had something going on at church where we could sing together. To, I wanted to get to know her. And that whole evening, she was telling me about her family, some things that had happened, and just, just hearing how she cared about her family uh, showed me the hidden character that I hadn't seen yet. And it drew me to her. I loved her, not because of the stuff that I would have loved somebody about 10 years earlier or lusted after, 
but I loved her because of the character that God had placed within her, and it made all the difference. And so it's beautiful to see a godly woman who emphasizes character over appearance. And so next slide. 1 Timothy 2, back there in verse 11. Verse 11 says this. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And then he gives an Old Testament reason. Um, in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So women are to learn in silence. Now, first and foremost, I want to point out something that was going on in the Ephesian church at the time. They weren't mixed. There was men over here, and there was ladies over here. And the pastor would be teaching, and the husband was on one side, and the wife was on the other, and the wife would have a question. And so she'd go, hey, Ronnie, and she'd call across the aisle and say, what's he mean by that? And of course, they didn't have microphones, they didn't have amplification, and so uh, it would disrupt the whole service. Or they'd say, hey, we get home, remind me, I forgot to put the laundry in the dryer. You know, there would just be something going on. Now, maybe this is not the same in your household, but my wife tends to talk more than I do. So it's more likely that she would be the one that's outspoken. Men, we tend to clam up. Maybe you guys are different than I get home and I, I, I've had all the talking I can handle in one day, so I'm kind of quiet. You have to draw things out of me. I'm not, you know, just spouting it out all the time. Uh, now, when you get me talking, I won't stop talking. You guys know that. But my point is, here he's talking about something that was going on in the order of their service that was causing distraction. The distraction was communication going on when there was supposed to be one person talking. If you've ever been in a conversation where somebody's talking behind you, and you, I, I have a hard time focusing. And so because of that, the teaching of the Word of God was being disrupted. And so Paul's just being very practical. Uh, you need to silence them. Tell them to stop. Because it's disruptive to the plan of God and the church of God while service is going on. So he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And it takes submission to take something like, if someone tells you to be quiet and you don't respect them, it's very difficult. You feel like they're being rude. I shouldn't, I can talk, I got freedoms, you know. Um, but then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And so people thumb wrestle over this, okay? There are churches that are led by women. And I would submit to you because of this very passage not just because Paul shared his opinion. Many people go, well, Paul wasn't married. It's easy for him to say that, right? But I think he's drawing a principle from an Old Testament passage that's kind of pivotal in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. So before we go there, we have to ask the question, where does Paul get his authority to teach something like this? Number one, he's an apostle. He was taught by Jesus. Number two, um, because this isn't his opinion. He's drawing this from an Old Testament passage. So he has precedence. So this is not because of ability. This is not because of uh, worthiness. This is just because of God's design. You know, when you are driving a car, if anybody still has a stick shift, 
if you pull on the lever to switch gears before you push the clutch in, what happens? You grind the gears, and then the transmission prematurely becomes broken. No one questions it when they read that in the manual. I don't have to push the clutch first, do they? They say, I will do that because I like my truck to run. So they push the clutch in, and then they put it in gear. God has designed the church. God has designed marriage, and he has made us male and female. Not what we want to be, but what he has chosen us to be. And so if that is the case, then he has a prescribed manner by which we should work together. And the way that he's chosen is for man to lead. Men, your wives naturally will want to lead, and you will naturally want to let them, because whether you like it or not, we are kind of lazy. We are. It, my wife is a better communicator. She's a better organizer. She just is. She's a mom. She goes in mom mode, and she can plan anything in moments. Text all the right people and doesn't even wear her out. It, it takes every bit of me to do it, and I'm not good at it. So I tend to go, well, then I don't need to do it. No, that's not the case. Men, we are to lead. Not just in making our children successful and doing their homework and all those things, doing their chores, but also we are to lead our children spiritually. Men are to lead. It is statistically proven that when a husband, when a father goes to church and takes his children there, the children are like way more, I didn't bring the numbers, but they are way more likely to stay in church after the parents are no longer in the picture. In college, everywhere. When the wife is the only one that comes to church, they're that many percentage less likely to stick. Now, I realize that many of us struggle with that. God is faithful. I'm a product of only a wife or a mom going to church. So there is hope. Jesus is bigger than statistics. But the reality is still there. Men, if we don't lead, they got nothing to follow, and they will follow somebody. They will follow somebody. They're going to follow the, the rapper on TV <laughs> who is a fool. They're going to follow uh, the evolutionist they come into contact with at college. They're going to follow somebody. They're, that's just their natural inclination. But if, as men, if we will be faithful to pray for and to lead our families, then things can still go wrong, but it's way more likely that they will become faithful members of God's kingdom. So, God's creative order. And then he says, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. So, if you'll uh, bear with me, we'll go to Genesis chapter 2 as we close. Genesis chapter 2. So, God made a woman out of the man. That's why she's called woman. And he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Verse 23. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now, everything was perfect. Until... The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, she said to the, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So she's just repeating what she's been told. But then it says there, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He questions God's authority and implies that God is withholding something from her that she really does need and will be beneficial. And so he says in verse 5, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So she was deceived. Now look at this, and maybe you haven't noticed this before. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam knew that he was not to eat. His wife partook. She was tempted. There was a desire. There was an opportunity. She took it. She was deceived. And then the husband ate when it came from her hand. My point is not that Adam was not susceptible to temptation. My point is that the man followed his wife and it did not go well for him. It was not God's design. And so uh, then the result of that, look at this. It says there, and we just read that everything was good in the garden. Uh, in verse 25 of chapter 2, they were both naked, the man and his wife. And look at this, they were not ashamed. They weren't ashamed. They were just who they were, and everything was good. But after they ate, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, able to make one wise, and she ate of its fruit, she also gave to her husband, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were open. So the serpent didn't completely lie. He said their eyes would be open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Why? Because they were ashamed. All of a sudden, the thing that they were not ashamed of before, they're ashamed of. Their eyes were opened. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? They hid. He said, I heard your voice in the garden. And look at this, I was afraid. So they're ashamed and they're afraid because they were naked and they hid themselves. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And then starts the battle of the sexes. The blame game. The original. Look at this. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, and he pronounces a curse. We don't want to focus on that one this morning. We want to focus on the curse. Uh, but also, I guess we should because we get the first uh, telling of when Jesus would come. He says, because you have done this serpent, you are cursed more than all cattle. More than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put war or enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. This is Jesus, the seed of the woman. To the woman, he said, look at this, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Everyone in here who has had children or heard of someone having children, 
You've seen the fulfillment of this. In pain you shall bring forth children, and look at this, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the word desire does not mean your desire will be to be with your husband in a very romantic way. It's actually that your desire will be to rule over your husband. So why is this big, you know, kind of bitterness come up when someone says you are not to be a leader in the church? You should not have authority over a man. It's because of this. God said because of the fall, you're going to have a desire to rule over your husband. But he shall rule over you. That's what God told us. To Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You will die. You're ashamed, (laughs) you're afraid, and you will die. That's the result of the fall. But I want you to focus on that. Your desire will be to rule over your husband, because that is why things are backwards. That's why things are tore up from the floor up in marriages. So, next slide, verse 11 through 15, is basically, it's in the assembly of believers, there are roles. Why is that bad? Because we have this fall, we have this flesh that rules over us. But he says there, very plainly, men are to lead and teach. That's just what he says. In chapter 3, we're going to find out that one of the qualifications to be an elder or a leader in the church is to be the husband of one man. Ladies, you just can't do that. You can't be a husband of one man. But he's called us to lead men, and women are stepping up and leading their families because men are not. So if your wife is leading in areas that you are aggravated about and you know you're supposed to be fulfilling that call, it's your fault, men. So step up and be gracious while she's trying to unlearn what she's had to learn in your absence of leadership. So again, we're not to lead because we're better, but because of God's order. That's how he's made it. Ladies are to teach too. I will submit to that, that to you. Verse uh, 15, it says, Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Ladies, uh, you are able to teach. Uh, You are gifted to teach, and I would encourage you to do so. Just do it in the lane that God has given you. He says uh, uh, that you can. He says not to have authority over men. He does not say anything about boys. Boys are to honor the Lord and honor their parents and respect and learn and obey their parents. So we have the authority to teach our children. That's what he means by uh, what he says there be saved in childbearing. It doesn't mean you'll be saved by having children. Not all women can have children. That would be a horrible salvation. But he says, in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So we know we're saved by Jesus. But we are able, we are given this opportunity to teach through our children. And then uh, also, look at this. She's also saved because the seed of the woman is the fulfillment of the prophecy we read in Genesis. So women, because of you being able to have children, uh, one of you has been the one who delivered the Savior into the world. That's a blessing. But not all women can have Jesus as their child. So, you know, it's not about that. So we are all able to have physical children 
and or spiritual children. So last slide. Why is it so important to live out our roles according to God's plan? What does that have to do with the effectiveness of the church? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this to the same church, mind you, that uh, Timothy is the pastor of. Verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wives, if you'll fulfill your role, you'll be a picture of your relationship with Jesus and the church's relationship to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Be willing to sacrifice for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, meaning presenting her, his wife, to Jesus, a glorious church, not having spot or blemish or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without spot. So the husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his own flesh, uh, but, excuse me, who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Many times we focus on marriage in this passage, but what we find out is that this is a great mystery, verse 32, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So, the main point of this passage is that as we live in the roles that God has given us, these are God-given roles, what happens is that the relationship between Jesus and the church, the called-out assembly of people, is revealed in our marriages and in the way we interact in the church to the outside world that does not see the mystery. It reveals it in a very practical way they can't see Jesus and the church working together, but they can see your marriage. They can't see Jesus and the church working together necessarily if they come and visit on a Sunday morning, but they can see the way that we submit to one another in the fear of God. And as couples, we are to submit to each other under the fear of God. So that sometimes means that what my wife says is actually something that I should heed. But it also means that we are all to follow Jesus and then live together in that manner. So hopefully that was more clear than muddled. Uh, but let's pray.